This is SAFM Literature. I'm Nancy Richards, and uh, up next in the in the hour coming up, first up, Sanctuary, or How an Inner City Church Spilled Onto a Sidewalk. Going to be talking to author Krista Kuldian, and she takes the reader on an historic journey of how the Central Methodist Church in Johannesburg became a visible reminder of so many of the challenges facing that city. And South Africa, incidentally, from poverty to policing, xenophobia, homelessness, there are so many stories in this book. Interesting to hear what she has to say about how she came to be writing it. We'll also have a chat to a reader in our What Are They Reading feature, after which we'll hear the second and final part of the Bush radio story told by Nigel Famas in Aluta Continua. But first, let's hear about the sanctuary story or how an inner city church spilled onto a sidewalk. Well, cast your mind back to May 2008 when xenophobic violence erupted here in South Africa and the threat of it spreading to the Central Methodist Church in downtown Joburg, which, as you might remember, was a place of refuge or sanctuary where people went when they had nowhere else to turn. And they were welcomed there by the very controversial Bishop Paul Verain. Well, on the line we have author of the book, Sanctuary, Christo Kuljan. Thank you, Christo, for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, wonderful cover. It's a picture of, the, of a young boy yawning underneath this blanket. It really is the most perfect picture for this book. But, Krista, how did you come to be writing this book? Well, you mentioned the xenophobic violence in May 2008, and it was those events um, throughout the country that... Um, hit many of us um, as a shock, and um, during that time, Central Methodist was in the, the headlines and caught my attention, and I was curious to find out more. Um, I had been working uh, as a freelance writer at the time and uh, also had spent many years working for a range of NGOs um, in, in similar work. So that's what... Um, sparked my curiosity, and I was fortunate enough in, in 2010 to apply for and receive the Ruth First Fellowship at Vitz Journalism, and I, I proposed to them that I would write about Central Methodist, and they liked that idea, and I ended up spending four months um, doing research at the church and gave the Ruth First Memorial Lecture in August 2010, and it turns out that several people from Jakana Media were in the audience that evening, and they later approached me and said, would you be interested in expanding the lecture into a book? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, yes, yes. This, this, this place, what has happened here, definitely deserves a book. It is a very big story. You weren't slightly daunted by the bigness of the story, the size of the story, and the fact that, in fact, this is your first book. Yes, it is my first book, um, which is very exciting. Um, and, you know, initially I was writing about events of 2008 and 2009 and, you know, the crisis at the church with the numbers of people, over 3,000 people living in the church, um, you know, on every pew, on every stairway, in every room. Um, so that was the story I was writing. As I continued my research, I realized the much larger story and the context that existed um, in the history of the church back to its founding in 1886, the same year as the founding of Johannesburg, and the story of, of the church in the 1970s and 80s under Reverend Peter Story, 
and his work there uh, in the city under apartheid, and and then the work of Reverend Mbume Dandala in the 1990s, and the work the church did during South Africa's transition, and then leading back up to, you know, the work uh, with uh, Reverend Paul Verain mm. more recently. So in a way, I found that the history of Central Methodist really paralleled the history of the city of Johannesburg and mirrored a lot of what this city has dealt with over time. Ironically, though, you point out in the book quite early on that the church was almost irrelevant to the city centre because people were there from 9 to 5 or 8 to 5, then they would all go home and the church would open its doors on a Sunday when nobody was there. The church itself was almost, a, if I can say, white elephant at one time. Yes, and initially um, the church was, the congregation was, you know, a 100% uh, white congregation uh, given the makeup of, of the city at the time and, and um, you know, and the racial laws in place from the founding of the church. Um, but the, the church went through great changes starting in the 70s, uh, and in fact, the book um, learns from uh, a woman named Lindiwe Mieza, who not only was the first black congregant at Central Methodist, but she was the first um, black woman on staff as well, so she did a lot of outreach work. And we follow her story, and, and um, through her, um, see, you know, um, and learn about a lot of the changes that went, un- you know, went... Um, were underway in the church and in the city. And what a feisty lady she is. She has really quite a story to tell. I mean, I think that she does a round of a whole lot of different restaurants to see where she could actually be allowed to go in and eat. (laughs) Yes, she didn't have much luck in the Um, Mm mid-1970s. And that prompted um, Reverend Peter Story, you know, after hearing her experience of not finding anywhere to eat lunch, uh, except perhaps on you know on the sidewalk, um, that uh, the church should open a restaurant called the People Center, and I think many uh, people in Johannesburg will remember that restaurant in the basement of Central Methodist um, that opened its doors in the late 70s and ran uh, until the early 90s, um, providing a place where people could come uh, to of uh, you know all walks of life and get a simple meal. And uh, so that was quite uh, a, a breakthrough in the mm. 1970s. Though, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of those people were white, and I think one of uh, Lindy Way's arguments was that she, he, here they were, all these white people who had the vote, and she was serving them food, and she didn't have the vote. Nor was she allowed to take communion. Well, in fact, um, I've got a short paragraph here that addresses that very issue. Mm. Um, I mean, Reverend Peter Story went out of his way to to try to reach out to um, the black community and and make people feel welcome um, in the church. He wanted um, the the church um, congregation to to shift and change. Um, but uh, this is a short paragraph uh, gives us a window on that. Mm. During those early years, Story was concerned about how to attract and encourage black people into what was ostensibly an all-white church. The city might have been changing, but his congregation was not. Despite his constant encouragement about everyone being welcome, Lindy Omieza was not only the first black employee at Central, she was also the first black member of the congregation. 
I would get into the church, and the whole choir was white, and the whole church was full of white people, she told me years later. I was the only single black among the sea of whites. Come Holy Communion, I wasn't sure whether I should go forward or not, so I just sat there. I wondered what the whites would say. But one day, I just got mad, and I went to Communion. The heavens didn't fall, and there was no negative response. Lovely. Lovely, she made it. <laughs> but if um, if the Reverend Story wanted to welcome black people, I think uh, Bishop Paul Varane actively opened the doors wide to let in people, not just black people, but people who had absolutely nowhere else to go. Yes, by the time Paul Varane arrived at Central Methodist, it was predominantly a black congregation. Mm. Things had shifted throughout the 90s. Um, and he came to Central Methodist in 1997. And the church was, um, you know, uh, reaching out to the city, and um, he started to um, particularly look at the homeless situation in Johannesburg, which was growing at the time in the late 90s. And so he started to open the doors to the homeless and destitute. And it was only really around 2000, 2001, 2002, that the first um, foreign nationals started to arrive as well, people coming into the city from other countries, uh, war-torn countries like the DRC and Burundi and, uh, and then Zimbabwe, um, that uh, needed a place to stay. So, yes, he opened the doors even wider. Um, first, it was just two or three people. Then it was 25 or 30. Then it was 100, 300. And, um, you know, by, by 2008, it was over 1,000. 2008 being the critical year, certainly the xenophobic flashpoint year. And, and I think a little bit later, there was a point where you actually go in and you, you meet the, the Reverend, uh, or at least the Bishop, and he invites you to come through to the sanctuary and you describe just how many people there are in the pews everywhere just to tell and you i think were invited to come and introduce yourself and explain exactly what you were doing there yes well there is a weekly friday night refugee meeting that's what the church calls that that weekly meeting in the evening a meeting of of all of the residents of the church um where um the agenda is long and goes through a long list of of programs and initiatives and visitors um, to the church. So on the first occasion where I attended one of those meetings, yes, I had to introduce myself, um, say that I wanted to try to write a long uh, article at first, um, try to go beyond the headlines to get a sense of what had been happening at the church over time, um, what life was like for people who were living there. And um, yes, over over time I I got to know many people who you know, resided there, um, got to interview uh, Paul Varane uh, about his experience, and um, and then, you know, and then continued my research over almost three years. So I got to know people and um, got to follow their lives over time. 
Yes, and life wasn't always a bed of roses, even in a church. I know you describe how uh, how Paul Verine um, admonishes people for not using the using all the facilities properly, and it's it's quite a it's really an exceptional and very very unique story. During which time your your years of research, you must have spoken to countless people, which must have made it quite difficult to know how to deliver the book. Um, it's non-fiction. It's a very real story. It's a very dramatic story. How did you craft it? Yes, well, I had a lot of material <laughs> and um, uh, started writing quite early on and but wasn't sure how the, the book would start, where I would open. Um, would I start with the police raid, which happened in January 2008? You know, would I start at the beginning and work my way chronologically? So I, I, you know, spent some time putting up cards on my wall, you know, representing different stories in different chapters um, to, you know, to craft the book. I also had um, to decide how much of would I write in the first person of my own experience, how much would I write in the third person. Uh, and in the end, I, um, you know, I used both and wove in a number of um, first-person accounts um, narrative pieces that uh, you know told the story of of people I had met and how I interacted with them. Um, but then there were large portions of the book that are in the third person that uh, right tell a story that's not about me at all, but uh, about a, a an institution and the the church over time and the people uh, who lived in it. Because it's such a such a frightening story, such a sort of a real life drama. It must have been quite difficult to know, you know, how to how to just say the fact without over exaggerating it. But there is one very dra- very dramatic moment that you describe when um, a lot of the men in the church are actually standing outside, ready to defend themselves and their families from uh, who are inside from this angry crowd who's coming around the corner. And I think um, Paul Verine comes and, and, and tells them just come inside. A very very poignant moment there. Yes, yes, and in fact, I decided to use that as the opening prologue, mm-hmm. um, which would set the tone um, for, you know, the scale of the challenge at hand, um, the circumstances people had left behind, um, and, you know, often leaving, um, you know, violent situations in their home countries and finding themselves in a very difficult situation in Johannesburg, not wanting to be living in a church um, and uh, not wanting to be far from home, but finding themselves uh, right with a new, um, you know, possible violent uh, conflict ahead of them and and wanting to defend themselves. So um, that is the opening, but um, uh, there are many other dramatic uh, points in this story as well as it unfolds. It certainly put the not only put the, the church on the map, but it certainly gave a whole new meaning to the word relevance because the church became incredibly relevant, but also incredibly controversial uh, for the people living around it. Yes, um, the the church did become very controversial um, in many ways. It was um, controversial in terms of, as you say, uh, its relationship with its neighbours. Uh, Central Methodist is on the corner of Pritchard and Small Streets. Um, it's right next to the High Court. 
there are many attorneys going to work there every day that were not happy about the situation. The small street mall property owners were unhappy. P.J. Chambers next door, a cham- uh, you know, building uh, for many advocates, actually took the church and the city to court um, because they felt that the church and the city was not upholding the bylaws, um, that the church was not zoned to uh, provide accommodation. There was um, refuse um, in the streets on a regular basis. People were sleeping in the street. There, you know, so so that was one set of 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 conflicts. There was a growing conflict not only with the city but with the Houteng province also getting involved, wanting to address the situation there. Also, national government, a task team, came together to try to address the issue in terms of housing and shelter mm-hmm. and alternative accommodation uh, for the people living there. Uh, mm-hmm. Then another set of issues came up as well in terms of uh, a growing number of, of children at the church. The church opened a school, the Albert Street School, to provide education for a growing number of, of refugee children, migrant children, uh, but there were a growing number of them that arrived without parents, without yeah. guardians. Yeah, I suppose the big question, Krista, is, and now? <laughs> yes. Well, now the numbers of people staying at the church has come down dramatically. Mm. In fact, there is no longer a crisis point at the church. But the issues that arose in 2008 and 2009 could return in our city, Johannesburg, city of migrants, um, uh, you know, if we were to foresee a conflict in, in Swaziland in the future, um, a conflict around the upcoming elections in Zimbabwe again, um, you know, if another country hit a crisis and large numbers of people came into to the city looking for work, um, the city, the province, South Africa would have to engage and address some of these issues again. It needs to be uh, prepared for that. Indeed, and uh, how many of those issues are highlighted in this book? Krista, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating, and it's quite a read. Krista Kuldian, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having Take me on care. the show, Nancy. Absolute pleasure. Bye. Krista is the author of a book called Sanctuary, How an Inner City Church Spilled Onto a Sidewalk, and it's published instantly by Dukana.